This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Oh, my heart is so full to be here. Be back at, as I told my kids last night, my second favorite church on the planet. Second only at Trinity Grace Church. Uh, so thankful to be back with you. You know, uh, 23 years ago in January, Kimberly Wynn and Walt Alexander began the Exploring Cornerstone Church class. It used to be 13 weeks, and if you missed one week, you were out. You had to wait for it to come back around the next quarter or whatever it was. But as I was walking several months ago, it just hit me like a wave that in the church, God has given me brothers. Of course, I had two brothers growing up, but God has given me brothers. In this church, God has given me also sisters. I look around the room, I see sisters that I've walked with for years. God gave me mothers in Cornerstone Church. I remember being in college one time, and one mother in Cornerstone Church lectured me on how gaunt I was getting and said she wanted to feed me vegetables, so I started looking full again. And she fed me many a time. God gave me, perhaps most significantly to me personally, God gave me another father and Bill. Uh, and a mother in a lot of ways. And Sherry. Bill married us 17 years ago last week. Bill mocked me when I put my son in a baptismal gown for his dedication, but I'm a, a recovering, recovering Presbyterian, so that's what it is. <laughs> Bill came, Bill and Sherry sat with us in the hospital as we waited the birth of our daughter and were worried about all sorts of complications we had. When we received a very difficult diagnosis about our son, our, our youngest, I cried on Bill's shoulder just an hour after those news. These guys have been with us, and so, so thankful to be here, so thankful for the role you've played in my life. I was walking around the neighborhood thanking the Lord this morning. So thank you, brother. Such a joy to open God's words. If you look there with me, I'm going to read 12 verses in Ecclesiastes 9. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with the living, with all the living, has hope. 
For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more to share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Verse 11, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly comes upon them. May God bless the hearing and the preaching of his word this morning. Well, several, several years ago, I read a story about Bessie. Bessie is a Burmese python, and one day Bessie accidentally escaped in her owner's apartment and was nowhere to be found. A gang of plumbers were called in to find the eight-foot-long snake in the walls and pipes of the 50,000-square-foot apartment complex. For two, after two weeks of searching, they found Bessie hanging out in the ceiling above the apartment where she lived. But for two weeks... The whole complex had to go to bed each night knowing Bessie was on the loose. For two weeks, they anxiously checked under beds, inside sheets, behind closets, doors, in hopes that Bessie did not emerge. For two weeks, they lived with the uncomfortable fear of stumbling upon Bessie. In the newspaper article about Bessie, after she was found, one resident said, well, we'll actually sleep a lot better now, you know? I can only imagine the relief of finding Bessie. Well, if you've ever studied the book of Ecclesiastes, you may have been left with a similar uncomfortable fear. Ecclesiastes is one of the five wisdom books in Scripture and is a hard word. Ecclesiastes tells us life is broken. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity, says the preacher. It's not saying all is pointless, but rather all is ultimately fruitless. All is ultimately unproductive. Life is like a broken vessel that just doesn't pour right anymore. Diligence isn't always rewarded. Wisdom doesn't always bring blessing. Righteousness doesn't always protect you from trouble. 
And so we can become unsettled and uncomfortable after this book, unsettled, anxious about how this brokenness might break in on us again, uncomfortable, fearful about what next disappointment will come, next sudden tragedy will strike, next shoe will drop. Even worse can leave us with a simmering bitterness over life, a bitterness that's just an epidemic in our culture, frustration about what life has taken from us, deep unforgiveness of those who've sinned against us, pervasive pessimism. We can, if we're not careful, adopt a victim's mindset, stuck in the past, bitter about what has happened, unable to move forward. In many ways, after trudging through the muck and mire of this broken world, Solomon in these verses, I'm going to refer to him as Solomon and the preacher at different points, begins to bring things to a close. He's urging us to reject the victim's mind. He doesn't want us to live in the brokenness of what has happened to us, nor does he want us to live in fear of how this brokenness might break in again. Solomon wants us to enjoy the few days of our life and spend our life living. In a word, where we're going is the choice is yours. Stay bitter or spend your life living for Christ with all your might. The choice is yours. Stay bitter or spend your life living for Christ with all your might. The first point is one thing is certain. One thing is certain. If you've read uh, David Gibson's book, Living Life Backwards, I stole his structure for this sermon. So there you have it. Giving him credit. Wonderful book. But one life is, one thing in life is certain. One thing in life that is certain is we're all going to die. My mom used to say around the house, the only thing you have to do in life, we'd say, I have to have these shoes or whatever it is. The only thing you have to do in life is pay taxes and die. One of which you have no control over. But as Solomon has been obsessing about death since the beginning of this book, that's what he means, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. What, what is there to be gained from this life? And so he kind of is obsessing here as well. This is what one scholar says, an anguish, an anguish reflection on the finality of death as the destiny of every person. An anguished reflection on the finality of death as the destiny for every person. Look at how it begins. All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of the Lord. Solomon's been talking about the righteous and wise for several chapters, how the righteousness cannot prevent brokenness in your life. Wisdom cannot understand brokenness in your life, and the wicked seem to avoid all brokenness altogether. But Solomon says the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of the Lord. We think this must be good. We're in the hand of the Lord. Being in the hand of God is a way of saying God is absolutely in control. That's what Jesus says when he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. Yet being in the hand of the Lord is not as comfortable as we think. Look at what Solomon says next. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Though in the hand of the Lord, for the righteous and the wise 
both love and hate are before him. Being in the hand of the Lord doesn't guarantee that only love lies ahead. Love and hate. Now Solomon's not saying that God hates those that he loves, doesn't hate those that he holds in his hand. He's really speaking as he looks out on the ground and just saying God's not doing evil to those people. He's just saying that as far as he can tell from the, from the ground level, being in the hand of the Lord makes no difference and whether one experiences good or evil, blessing or trouble. He continues and explains, look at verse 2, it's the same for all since the same event, talking about death, happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and evil, the clean and unclean, him who sacrifices, him who doesn't, for the good one and the sinner, who swears an oath, and him who doesn't. The same event happens to all. Nowhere in the book of Ecclesiastes is he more specific about the fact and finality of death. Six different contrasts right there in those two verses. Doesn't matter if you're righteous or wicked. Doesn't matter if you're good or evil. Doesn't matter if you're clean or unclean, obeying the works of the law. Doesn't matter if you sacrifice or if you don't or you swear an oath or you shun an oath. The same event happens to all. Do you see what he's saying? The things that are supposed to matter most to God from the ground level, don't seem to matter at all. They don't seem to make a difference. John Piper says, don't waste your life. Solomon says, what's the use? It won't make a difference in the end. Doesn't matter how you live with how you're treated in the end. You're going to die, and no one will be able to tell you, tell whether you, your life made any difference. Look in verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all, a terrible evil. But he continues. But he who's joined to the living, or let's move up a little bit, 3b, he says, the hearts of children of mankind are full of evil. So if there's no relationship between how one lives and what happens in the end, some say, party down. So he says there's madness in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. They're like Jack Kerouac, who says, I'm mad to talk, mad to love, to burn, 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 to live. They throw off restraint and chase every thrill and every pleasure. But they, too, will go to the dead. They, too, will die. If we're all going to die, well, life must be better while we're alive. <laughs> Look at verse 4, for he, for he who is but he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. A living dog is better than a dead lion. That's another better than uh, statement that runs through the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, in the Peanuts cartoon, Theology and the Dog, Snoopy sits atop his house typing away. Charlie Brown arrives on the scene and is handed what Snoopy's been typing. It reads, and in the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, a living dog is better than a dead lion. <laughs> Charlie Brown gives it back to him and says, what does that mean? Snoopy says, I don't know, but I agree with it. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, it means it's better to be alive than to be dead, right? 
That's the way Solomon continues in verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. There's no reward, no memory of them. So, so the dead don't know anything, but at least you know something while you're alive. So it's a better to be alive than dead, but not much better. You're not a lion. You're a dog. Unlike all creatures great and small, the animal in that world did not come first. Dogs were not man's best friend, treated to doggy daycare and daily walks. They were unclean scavengers roaming around and rummaging through trash for something to eat while they lived out their numbered days. It may be better to be alive, but life is miserable. What's this mean? One thing in life is certain, you're going to die. The fact and finality of death, though, leaves a fog over everything in life under the sun making it miserable. Life for every person is a rushing river running to one place, to death. You get no chance to relish your joys, relive the good old days. No time to white out your pains. You're being carried along, downriver. Death may come in 20 years, may come tomorrow, but it's coming. It's a sober word. It's a hard word. You might be a, 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 an unbeliever coming in here trying to understand what Christianity is all about. Well, this is a crucial truth for Christianity because we believe that all are going to die. And after death, Hebrews tells us, all will face judgment. They'll face judgment before the throne of God. And it's only by fleeing from Jesus Christ will we, will we flee the wrath that is to come for all who face that judgment. I encourage you to come to him. So, so uh, only one thing is certain. Point two, many things in life are uncertain. Many things in life are uncertain. Now, the way this passage comes to us in Ecclesiastes, I believe this passage is carefully structured to emphasize verses 7 through 10. So we're going to turn now to verses 11 and 12. So only one thing in life is certain, but the author, the preacher, tells us many things in life are uncertain. Look at verse 11. He says, again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, now Solomon is saying what he said many times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, that life is just not working properly. Life is, is broken. You don't just get out what you put in, not in life. It doesn't always pay off. It's not always fruitful. And so he lists five examples here. The fastest do not always win the race. The strongest do not always win the battle. The wise do not get the bread. The intelligent do not get the riches. The knowledgeable do not get the favor. Many of the things we think are certain in life are, in fact, uncertain. Many of the things that we think would be a given, a shoe in an easy win, 
are not because of the sudden misfortunes that fall upon all. Look in verse 11. Again, he says, time and chance happen to them all. So it doesn't work out. These, these, these things that we think are given, they don't work out because time and chance happen to them all. It's not as if things are happening randomly outside of God's control. It just appears that way. It appears like things are random, haphazard and sudden. Time and chance happen to them all. It's not that there's no order in this world. Solomon's saying it's just harder to see now. And so we must come to grips with this. David Gibson helpfully says, we tend to live as if the one thing that is certain will never come, while the many things that are uncertain are certain. We tend to live as if the one thing that is certain will never come, while the many things that are uncertain are certain. Solomon advises us to get comfortable with uncertainty. We assume, we're just kind of wired to assume if we train hard, we'll win. If we prepare best, we'll win. We assume if we're the wisest, we'll never lack. Assume we make the best grades, we'll be well off. Attain the knowledge that we need and all the doors will open. But Solomon says it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Get comfortable with uncertainty. All the things that you've colored into the future, put an asterisk by them. Because life's not like that. You know, sometimes our lives are shaken by sudden tragedy. But often it's these uncertainties, often it's the long string of them, unexpected twists and turns that break us down. When we're young, we want to be an astronaut, a firefighter, a ballerina. We want to do something amazing. But these uncertainties begin to whittle us away such that we just want a job to be proud of. We just want a few close friends. Just want a happy table at Christmas a house with a yard, a long life with grandchildren, a peaceful retirement. Solomon's saying, watch out. You can't bank on those things. Solomon continues with two images of what life is actually like. Very sobering images. Look in verse 12. He said, for man does not know his time. Time and chance happen unto them all. Man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon him. Solomon uses these two images to evoke the horror of these uncertainties landing in our life. We're like fish in a net, swimming along happily, and then suddenly entangled. We're like birds in a snare, flying along, landing to find food, only to have a trap enclosed around us. That's what life feels like. That's what he's saying. You may feel in invincible. You may feel free. You may feel like you got your whole life ahead of you. You have desires and dreams and plans, but none of those things are certain. In fact, often it feels like the net and the snare comes and sidelines you when you least expect it. When you pull out the coloring book of the future, Solomon is saying, be careful how carefully you color it in. 
The only thing certain about the future of your life is uncertainty. Well, in a particularly serious comic, trip, a comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes put the finger on what we all feel like. If you read Ecclesiastes, Calvin, the boy, and Hobbes, his stuffed tiger who comes to life in his imagination, find a baby raccoon that's barely alive. Calvin runs to get his mom, and Hobbes says, I'm sure she can help. Calvin, running away, yells back, of course she can. You don't get to be mom if you can't fix everything just right. <laughs> Love that. When his mom gets there, she realizes the, the raccoon is barely alive and likely to die. Nevertheless, she puts the poor creature in a box and brings him home. They keep him in the garage and bring him food and water. Even Calvin puts on a generous spirit. He says, chances are I'd be happy to donate most of my dinner to the raccoon. His mom replies, Calvin, you don't even know what we're having yet. Before Calvin and Hobbes go to bed, the boy peers over the lid at the raccoon with a sad expression on his face. Don't die, little friend. Don't die. When he wakes in the morning, he runs toward the garage and runs into his dad. Says, Dad, did you check on the little raccoon this morning? Did you check on the little raccoon? He says, yes, Calvin. I'm afraid he died. Calvin cries out, what? What? Crying over a cartoon. After they bury the little raccoon under the tree, Calvin says, I, don't, I didn't even know he existed a few days ago, and now he's gone forever. And the strip ends with Calvin's back to the reader, whispering to Hobbes, what a stupid world. <laughs> what a stupid world. You know, in that way we feel sometimes. What a stupid world. How, how can the beautiful world, the beautiful world that God has made, be shriveled down into a short life with one certainty and many, many uncertainties. What's going on? I mean, why are faithful employees laid off, good reputations destroyed, godly families broken by loss? Why are the hopes of young moms dashed and miscarried, young athletes in injury, young businessmen in bankruptcy? Why does chronic pain cripple plans for retirement? Cancer, cancel plans with grandchildren. Alzheimer's, erase the memories of all that has happened before. What a stupid world. Many things in life are uncertain, but Solomon is not saying this so that we throw up our hands like Calvin. Solomon's saying all this so that we learn how to spend our lives living for what is good. Point three, a few things make life good. A few things make life good. So we return to the middle of this text. You know, it'd be tempting to respond like Calvin, just to say, to be consumed with the brokenness of life and and be consumed with bitterness and anger and despair and grimace and bide our time until death. But here the preacher is urging us not to do it, not to give in. 
but to press on to spend our life living with all our might. Now, now the book of Ecclesiastes is peppered with these refrains of joy. It's better than, it's better to rejoice, better enjoy your lot and all these things. But this one is the best. It's set apart. It's longer and more specific than all the other joy refrains. It includes no better than statement, no comparative statement, no sense of suggestion. In these four verses, there's seven commands. He's not merely suggesting a wise way to live in this world. He's commanding the way to live in this world. He's telling us the positive will of God. What is the will of God for your life? He's going to lay it out. First, enjoy your wine, we could say. The first most basic necessity of life is food and drink, and that's where Solomon begins. Look at verse 7. He says, go eat your bread with joy. Instead of chasing all the uncertainties of life, enjoy what God gives. One author says, if you take Ecclesiastes away, it's gifts, not gain. That is the new motto of life. Enjoy these gifts. Eat your bread with joy. For God has already approved of what you do. Don't scarf down lunch so you can get back to looking busy. Don't rush dinner so you can start devotions. God has approved of what you do. God doesn't need you running around trying to impress him or anyone else. God knows what you need. Relax, eat, and drink with joy. In a biography about pastor and author John Stott, one of his study aides and his nephew tells a fascinating story about how Mr. Stott sought to enjoy the good things God gives. He says, and I quote, Every afternoon at 4.30, I would bring Uncle John a cup of coffee. As soon as I would set the cup on his desk, he almost always says, somewhat playfully, I'm not worthy, usually without moving his bowed head from his papers. One afternoon last week, I felt that it was particularly silly for him to equate worthiness with a cup of coffee, And when he said, I'm not worthy, I responded, sure you are. After a few moments, he said, you haven't got your theology of grace right. I said back, it's only a cup of coffee, Uncle John. As I went into the kitchen and began putting things away, I heard him mutter, still with his head down in his papers, it's just the thin end of the wedge. Just the thin end of the wedge. The the idea is we just lose sight of the little things. We'll lose sight of all the blessings of God. The fact is we're just surrounded by an avalanche of blessings. And he's calling us, alerting us to the gift of food so that we would live with our eyes open to all these things in a life filled with so many uncertainties. What do you deserve? Death and wrath, just like me. But what do you get in your life? Learn to stop and receive and rejoice over your food. So eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Now Solomon's obviously not endorsing drunkenness, but he's encouraging a little wine to gladden the heart. 
and to help with life's brokenness. The idea is God is blessing us with, with, with something extravagant when something simple could do the job. Remember a couple years ago, we were backpacking. My son and I, I had this bar that had all the calories you needed for an entire day in one bar. The problem was it tasted like dirt. <laughs> and, you know, you'd break it off and, you, yeah, it gave you all the nutrients you needed, but it tasted terrible. That's not the world God has made. So he said, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, because God has given you something lavish when he could have just given you something with sustenance. He's given you wonderful things to eat and drink, so enjoy them. Let your garments be always white. Let your garments be always white. The idea is not that you are as pure as driven snow, so dress like the Pope. That's not it. The idea is you're happy. So dress like you're going to a party. White is the color of celebration, of festival. Think how striking this is. In this world filled with this certainty and so many uncertainty, God is commanding us to live like we're celebrating. Because this world will soon pass and we will be ushered into the great celebration. So wear the color of celebration. Don't dress like you're going to a funeral. Dress like you're going to a party. Don't dress like you're going to a homeschool convention. <laughs> or going snow skiing in July. Dress to show dignity and strength, beauty and joy. That's what he's commending. Enjoy your wife. Look at that. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Don't live with your wife. Don't put up with your wife. Enjoy life with your wife. What's he saying? Life is brief. It'll soon be over. We often live like our spouse will always be there. After I give time to, to the kids or to work or the game or whatever, I'll be able to give time to my spouse. But one day they won't be there. You don't know when that day's arriving. I'll never forget being haunted by R.C. Sproul's, Sproul Jr.'s words when his wife died of cancer. I wish I held her hand more. The brevity of life. <laughs> what is the greatest gift outside of salvation? The gift of a spouse that you share. This life. Enjoy life with your wife. Enjoy your work, he, he concludes. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you're going. Whatever it is you do. Do with all your might. Work hard while you're on the clock because one day you won't clock in again. The list, though, could be, this list is not exhaustive. Solomon's saying, enjoy your life. Live life to the full. Don't let the uncertainties of life and that certainty of death sideline you. Don't let them take you out of the game. Don't let them leave you biding your time or fearful or bitter or grimacing. Solomon's saying, put it all on the table. Go all in, so to speak, on life. In chapter 11, fascinatingly, he says, view your life like seed. Sow your life. 
Give your life. Sow your, your life is like a seed. What is a seed? A seed is a new plant, a new tree, a new harvest, a new beginning. I've never farmed a day in my life. But the analogy makes so much sense. You don't know what will happen if you do not sow. I mean, you don't know what will happen if you, do, if you sow. You don't know what will happen if you do sow, but you know what will happen with what you do not sow. Nothing. That's what Solomon's saying. You must not stop sowing. You must not settle. Your life is like seed. Your longings, your labor, your time are like seeds to be sown. Your life is not over. So he's commending us in the midst of this context. Your life still matters. You're stamped in the image of God. It's no time to hang up the spurs. There's seed in your hand. You have seed to sow. You have life to spend. What are you waiting for? Go on the date. Have the hard conversation. Book an adventure. Build a zip line. Jump in the water. Start a business. Make a million dollars. Give it all away. Commit to the community. Date your spouse. Call your folks. Read a book to your kids. Adopt a child. Learn a language. Laugh with your friends until you cry. Give your heart away again and again and again and again. Speak to Christ. Speak about Christ. Plant a church. Plant a church. Even the language we use is sowing language. You're sowing. What are you sowing? You're sowing your faith. You're sowing your finances. You're sowing your friends. You're sowing your what could have beens, your wishes. You're saying goodbye to something. You're saying there's something better than holding on to what I have. What is it? Letting go and sowing. Asking God to do it again and give the lamb the full reward for his suffering. I don't know if you should go. I don't know what your involvement is, but I know you're called to sow in some way. And can I just thank God and thank you for sowing five years ago? Thank you for sowing your faith and your finances and your friends. Thank you for sowing me. You may get tired of me saying thank you. I know sometimes I feel like Bill gets tired of me saying thank you, but I'll never tire of saying because our church has a story. And humanly speaking, our church, that story begins with you. It begins with the seed you sowed. I must say, God has caused your seed to bear fruit in ways we never could have imagined. This morning, I had the privilege of driving to church from Athens the same drive that people did for eight to ten years, some of them. You know, the first time I drove to Athens, after packing up the U-Haul, and Kim and I were both crying in separate cars, I called Bill, he called Sherry, and we all had a good cry. I didn't know what I was driving to. I drove up here today, I knew it was in the rear view church. Once there was not a people called Trinity Grace Church, but now there's a people. There's a family. There's precious memories and inside jokes and weird uncles. 
and many, many stories of God's unexpected grace. So thank you for saying goodbye so that we could say welcome to lost sinners. One of the precious stories that has come full circle in the last year is our first convert, I believe, definitely our first baptism, a man named Ralph. Three marriages and a rough life, and he's on. He'll die soon. 74 years old, was converted because he lived underneath an apartment complex, one of the members of our church. Ralph, a couple years later, invited his sister. His sister and her husband started coming. They invited their neighbor, grew up, neighbors, grew up Catholic. All they knew about Christianity was Catholicism. We had the privilege of baptizing husband and wife together. Now that family has opened up their home to a, young, or a single gal who just had a horrible life, who was just baptized and welcomed as a new member, or will be welcomed as a new member soon, but just baptized several weeks ago. And so you see all the connections from this one little family. We could go on and on. I've, I've just come to believe that one of the most powerful things in the world is when that church becomes my church. When someone says, this is my home now. These are my people. This is where I'm walking out my faith. And there's just dozens and dozens of stories like that in Athens because of you. So thank you. The choice is yours. Stay bitter or spend your life living for Christ with all your might. In the end, the preacher is not telling us about death so that we can prepare to die. The preacher is telling us about death so that we can prepare to live. Death is what gives life meaning, actually. Death means that there will not always be a tomorrow, so today is worth fighting. Death means there's a fight to fight, a race to run, a faith to keep, eternal life to grab a hold of. Death means there's a conclusion, a finish line, a final rolling of the credits. Death is a grace. Death is a gift in that respect. Death is telling us to get our hands dirty now, to get blisters now, to make our muscles strain now. Death is pushing us to live now, to forget what lies behind and press forward to what lies ahead, to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death means there's a wife to love, children to cherish, friends to build, communities to create, businesses to build, good works to do, churches to plant, and cake to be eaten. And when our time does finally come, we will sow for the last time. But we will not sow a seed. We will be sown. We will die. But most wonderfully, we'll be planted. We'll await the full harvest, when the Lord of the harvest comes. Let us run to him. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of sitting under your word and thank you for this wonderful church. Would you help us to rest in you this day? Lord, we offer ourselves to you sincerely and completely. We don't want to play the game. We give you our lives. Lord, we don't want to live trying not to die. We want to live with all of our might while we yet have life. Lord, help us to run the race that you've set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.